So good to be here. Um, if you have a Bible, I'd love it if you'd open uh, your Bible. And we're going to turn to the book of Nehemiah, um, which is a book that we've been studying over the past few weeks. And um, we're going to read uh, just, um, just a few verses um, from Nehemiah. Um, And some verses from the New Testament as well. I I always, um, tonight we're going to talk about leadership. And I'm not sure there has been a more pertinent moment to talk about leadership than than the era that we're in right now. Because we all know, don't we, that leadership is really important and the way leaders handle themselves. Because the power. And uh, the influence that people have is significant. And, um, and we're in an era where Putin uh, is in leadership <laughs> in Russia. And Trump is in leadership in, in the U.S. And, um, and we find ourselves in the middle of those conversations. And we're in an era where leadership is under threat in business, in economics, in the family... Uh, where this thing that I believe God has given, this gift called leadership, is something that we need to talk about, that God has a view on. And so we're going we're gonna to look at leadership in the book of Nehemiah because um, be, above, beyond Jesus, Nehemiah is the best example, I think, we're given in the, in the scriptures um, of godly leadership. And so we're going to spend some time, we're going to be all over the book of Nehemiah this evening, and we're going to spend some time looking at leadership. And you know, here's here's the thing, I speak on leadership all over the place. I travel and I speak and I speak on leadership, but um, the most nervous I ever am is speaking on leadership here. Because I can speak on leadership in other places and people can assume that what I'm saying is true, (laughs) and I kind of do it, And, and I speak on leadership here and you know because I lead, and you know the dysfunctions, you know the, the, the mistakes, you know the messes, you know that this is very human, that we're having a go. And, uh, and so th- I come in trepidation to speak on, on leadership from, from this passage of Scripture. If you want to build a wall, referring to Nehemiah, if you want to build a wall, and you know the context of the story, the walls of Jerusalem are down, And when the walls are down, God is dishonored. And when the walls are down, people are exposed. And when the walls are down, it's a disgrace. If you want to build a wall, if you want to build a wall in your family, if you want to build a wall in your friendship group, if you want to build a wall in your community or your city, if you want to live a life blessing people, if you want to live a life honoring God, if you want to build a wall, first you pray and second you lead. First you pray and second you lead. And so let's, let's, let's take a look at what Nehemiah has to tell us about leadership. We're going to go to a few verses. I want you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. And you know the story, Nehemiah is in this place called Susa, which is, he's an exile in, uh, in the area of Babylon, and he's in Susa, and he gets this visit from a cousin who's come from Jerusalem, and the cousin says, the walls are down, they've been down for 150 years, and it's a disgrace, and the people are in a mess. 
and, uh, and Nehemiah is broken. I mean, like totally broken for a city he's never been to and a people he doesn't know very well, but God gets hold of his, of his heart. And Nehemiah, who has never, ever done any building as far as we know, he's, um, he's a wine taster. He, he's a servant of the king, a civil servant. He's not got a civic engineering background. He's not into construction. He, he does what people haven't been able to do for 150 years. He builds a wall. And, and a wall that's been down for 150 years is raised in 52 days. It's a miracle, but it's a miracle of leadership. And so I want us to look at just a few principles of leadership. We could, we could do a whole series on, on leadership from this passage. So just one relatively short sermon on leadership. Here we go. Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah goes to the king. The king said to me, verse 4, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. It must have been a very short prayer. It's one of those, God help me. And then he answers the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Now that's a vision, isn't it? If it pleases you, king, who could kill me, send me from here to the city that used to be the enemy city that your forefathers sacked, but my forefathers lived in, and I'm going to rebuild that city that you destroyed. Send me. And then Nehemiah goes, and then we're going to read from verse 17. So Nehemiah heads off to Jerusalem, and uh, he goes, and we, we know from, from history that the trip will be about 800 miles, and they'd have to go, it wasn't direct, they'd have to go up and around the Fertile Crescent. It would take maybe two to three months to make the trip. It wasn't a kind of on-the-whim thing, I might go to Jerusalem. It was a planned thing, this is where I'm, I'm going. And he gets to Jerusalem, and he inspects the walls, and they're as bad as he was told. And then verse 17, he gathers the people, and he says to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. And then I want you to turn to the New Testament. And I want you to go all all the way right until you almost can't go right any further. And I want you to get to the book, the letter to the Hebrews. In the letter to the Hebrews there is a section which in Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the hall of fame of faith. It's, 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 the, it's the litany of leadership of God's people and some incredible things that happened because God's people had courage and did these things. And then on Hebrews chapter 12, which not surprisingly follows Hebrews chapter 11, it says this, Therefore, because of that kind of leadership, 
We are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray and then let's, let's teach together. God, we trust that this is your word. We come together as broken, ordinary individuals in the hands of a supernatural God. We believe that you speak and we ask you to come speak to our hearts in such a way that it would change our lives. We have this audacious belief that we could leave here different because you've spoken. So Holy Spirit, we invite you now to speak. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Leadership is God's vehicle for transformation. Leadership is God's vehicle for transformation and everybody is a leader. In other words, it's not going to work for me if you sit there and think that 75% of you can rule yourself out of the next 25 to 30 minutes because you're not a leader and this doesn't apply to you and it's quite an exclusive sermon because the leaders are going to get something and you're not. Because everybody in this room is a leader. Let me show you. The moment that you were born, you started to lead yourself. The moment you started to breathe, the moment you started to walk, the moment you started to eat, you, begin to, you began to lead yourself and then you began to have influence over other people. You started to lead. The moment that you were born again, that leadership just increased because the responsibility of influence became greater because now you know God. And now you have the good things of God and the good news of God and you're supposed to somehow live that out and impart it. And so you're supposed to have influence on more people. Everybody is a leader. The issues left are only issues of context, capacity, and charism. In other words, it's just about where you lead how many people you lead, and with what gifts you lead. It's not about you're not a leader. You can be a leader in the family. You could be a leader in the home, and, and you're, the amount of people you're supposed to lead is one person, but you're still a leader. You can be a leader in your business, and you can have a team of three or four. You're a leader. You could be a leader in your street because you organize people to get something done. You're a leader. And so it doesn't work for me for you to rule yourself out of of listening to this stuff because God has got a plan, and every time he wants something done, he raises up leaders. And leadership is God's vehicle for transformation. The first thing you're supposed to do is pray. The second thing you're supposed to do is lead if you want to build a wall. The first thing the enemy of God opposes is prayer. That's why you find it difficult to pray. Because the enemy of God knows that when you come to a brick wall, if you pray, that brick wall isn't a problem for you. But if you don't pray, it's going to be a significant problem. Because prayer releases the power of heaven. And so the enemy of God opposes prayer. That's why you find it difficult to get up in the morning and pray. That's why you find it difficult to show up at a 24-7 prayer event. That's why you find it difficult to pray for more than four minutes without your mind going somewhere else. Because the enemy of God opposes prayer. The second thing the enemy of God opposes above anything else is leadership. Because the enemy of God knows 
that if God wants something done significantly, he will raise up a leader to make it happen. And so what he does is he sows into a culture even a dismissal and a, 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 a derision around leadership. So who died and made you the leader? Who died and made you the boss? Don't get ahead of yourself. Don't have a big dream. Don't have a big idea. Sit down, shut up, don't lead. Because he knows if he can sow that thought into a culture and nobody's leading, nobody can lead us out of the mess that he created in the first place. And so the enemy opposes prayer and the enemy opposes leadership. That's why we need to talk about leadership. We need to talk about what it means to be godly leaders. So, so let's, let's get our eyes down and look at this passage of scripture and notice this. Leaders are people who have a vision. This is everybody, so we need to know that. Leaders are people who have a vision. Chapter 1 of Nehemiah is the story of Nehemiah getting a vision. Let me show you how a vision works. It starts with a complaint, usually. The walls are down. It develops into a dream. What would it look like if we built the walls up? It grows into an ask. Could I go and build the walls? It evolves into a plan. If I walk around the Fertile Crescent and I get to the walls and I raise up a team of people, we might build some walls. It unites people in a cause, but it starts with a why. Why should I rebuild the walls? Because God is not being glorified and people are exposed. And therefore we need to build some walls. And the why is the compelling fact. What is your why? Let me show you how you might find it. One of the things that I teach um, anybody that comes anywhere near me actually is if you want to find who you are called to be in life and what you're called to do in life and where you're supposed to go in life, you would do well to find the centering point between four questions. Question number one, what is your complaint? What, what has God got your heart for? What really irritates I don't mean, you know, what's your illness today or did you get out of bed in the wrong way or who's irritating you? I mean, what's your complaint? What, what, what irritates you? What gets you? What has God got your heart for? Second question is, what is your greatest dream? It usually starts with, what would it look like if? Could you imagine? In your wildest moments, what would you love to see happen? What's your biggest complaint? What's your greatest dream? Fourth question is this, third question is this, what's your strongest gift? I, I don't mean can you find it exactly in the Bible. What I mean is what are you good at? What are you really good at? I and mean, sometimes you can't actually articulate yourself that you have to ask somebody else to tell you what you're really good at. But what are you really good at? Fourth question, what is your deepest joy? What brings you life? And somewhere in the middle of those four questions, somewhere in here, it's not a pinpoint because that would be way too concrete and prescriptive. It's probably like this. But somewhere in the middle of that, you will find your why. You'll work out who you really are and what you're really for. And then the when and the where and the with whom and the how, it begins to work itself out because God got hold of your heart for something. God gave you a dream for something. God placed gifts inside of you and God's given you joy and he's not a kill joy. What's your why? What's your why? You need to get a vision because godly leadership is visionary. You see, not me is the greatest destiny killer. It's not me, can't be me. I'm not a leader. It's not, it must be somebody else, not now. 
is the greatest excuse for inertia in the kingdom of God. It, you know, I'll wait until I'm more mature or I've got more qualifications or, 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 or I meet somebody or, or whatever. But this leadership is visionary. I don't mean it needs to be a hairy, audacious, huge vision. It doesn't have to be a humongous vision. It doesn't have to be gargantuan. The vision just might be a vision for your life. The vision just might be a vision for your family. The vision might be a vision for your street or for your friendship group or a vision for a small group of people or or the vision might be to end homelessness. (laughs) I don't know what the vision is, but you need a vision. Let me me tell you what a vision is. I mean, check check out Nehemiah, verse 17 and 18. Nehemiah shows up in Jerusalem and he doesn't know anybody. And he walks around the walls and he's got this idea and he then starts to try and communicate this idea to people. And he says something like this, guys, come on, I'm in this thing, you're in this thing. It's not about me being a consultant. I've come here to do something. We're in this thing together. What I'm suggesting is going to change everything. This is not just about building walls. This is going to deal with our disgrace. This is not about building walls. This is going to deal with our disgrace. We used to believe that we were the people of God. We're going to believe this again. God is in this. He got hold of my heart. He called me. He gave me his heart for this. And by the way, I'm in favor with the king. That's a vision. Ask God for Let me tell you what I think a vision is. A vision is something that according to your own resources, you can't do but tethered to the God of heaven, you just might. In other words, a vision is not a to-do list. A to-do list is a to-do list. If you can do it, it's not a vision. If it's a to-do list with a massive God gap, then it's called a vision. But if it's a to-do list that you can do, then, then do it. It's not a vision. A vision is something that is beyond you. That is, that, is, that is not dependent on you, that is, that is asking God to stretch out his hand and do something in your life, that is audacious, that is, that is something bigger than you. Dear King, I want to rebuild a city. I don't know if this works, but let me, let me tell you what my, my vision is, if this helps. I have a complaint. My complaint goes something like this. The church of Jesus Christ doesn't look much like the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be beautiful and the bride of Christ, but often it looks ugly. It's, it's supposed to be embracing, but often it looks dismissive. The church of Jesus Christ is not having the impact of the church of Jesus. We've got a branch in every city, in every town, on every street corner, and we're not making an impact. That's my complaint. My dream, what would it look like? if we had the full mobilization of the entire body of Christ in the Celtic nations? Could we see God move again in power like he did and could we see the re-evangelization of Europe? Could we, could, if everyone got to play, everyone got to use their gifts, everyone got to use their skills, my gift, someone once told me I wasn't allowed to articulate my gift, I had to wait for someone to tell me what my gift was. Well, I'm going to tell you what my gift is. My gift is to provoke and release and encourage people to do this, to run with their dreams, to say, God's, I've, I've, God's got something more for you. Don't settle for it. My joy, my joy is when I see people doing better than me at the things that I think I'm pretty good at. That's my joy. Now that's, that's what, what's your why? What, 
get yourself a vision that is so compelling that it's bigger than the fear that you naturally have. And then embody that vision. In other words, a vision isn't something that you can just articulate. A vision is something that you need to embody. You need to do it. Susa is 800 miles away from Jerusalem and Nehemiah had no idea whether he would be accepted or rejected or thrown out or anyone would listen to him at all. But, but what you need to understand is this. Nehemiah's story is the ultimate story of all in. Nehemiah goes to the king and he doesn't say this but basically he's saying this. He's saying, I am never coming back to this cushy job drinking wine for you. Because we both know that it's three months away and we both know that I'm going to do a job for 52 days or maybe more than that. And we both know if I'm ever coming back, it's going to be another three months and you'll employ somebody else and I'll just be forgotten. I'm nev- I am never coming back to this. I'm all in. And I love the fact that in verse 17 and 18, when Nehemiah gets to the city, he doesn't say, you are in a mess. He doesn't say, you, you, by the way, guys, you're in a mess. He says, look at the mess we are in. This, this leadership is incarnational. It's down and dirty. It gets involved. This is the leadership of Jesus. This leadership needs to be, needs to be incarnated. And this leadership has a plan. And it will prosper you. Which is a dangerous thing to say. This leadership has a plan, and it will prosper you. Nehemiah has a plan. Notice this real quick. Chapter 2, verse 6, 7, 8, and 9. He says to the king, I'm just going to go on this kind of random whim. I need some things from you because we've got to build a wall. So what I need from you is a certain amount of time. I need some letters to officials so I can get to the places I need to get to. I need some timber from your forest so I can build the wall up. And I need a small army of people as well to help me build this wall and to help me protect me on, on, on the way. What's your plan? I mean, that's your dream. But what's your plan? I see too many people with a dream that's going to change the world tomorrow but don't have a plan. And if you don't have a plan, if you don't have a strategic plan, nobody is going to follow you. It's not going to work and nobody is going to be blessed. What is your plan? Nehemiah's plan is so smart. He's a genius. He says, we're going to build a wall and here's a little idea I had. Everybody is going to build the section of wall outside their own house. Genius. I'll tell you why. Because where are you going to build the wall strongest? Outside your front window, aren't you? You're going to go, I mean, I know he's playing into the whole selfish nature of people. He's going to go, do you know, what I'm going to make sure is if the enemy comes, they're going to come to my neighbors, not to me. So I'm going to build the biggest, strongest part of the wall. It's never going to be knocked down. And and everyone's thinking the same thing. So the wall's going to be built strong everywhere. He has a plan. What's your plan? What's your plan? Whatever your plan is, know this. If the vision is God's and he's called you to it, the vision will prosper. Look at verse 20. Nehemiah says, the king of heaven will make us prosper. In other words, he's saying God is not short on cash. He's not short on wood or bricks. And he's not short on generosity. The word for prosper there is the word salak. It's used elsewhere in the scriptures to mean 
bear fruit. It's used to to mean find favor in unfavorable environments. And what Nehemiah is saying is the God of heaven is going to give us success. He's going to push us forward. We're his servants. We serve God. Now here's the reason. Let me show you. The reason that the wall had been down 150 years and the reason that so many churches are failing and falling and the reason that so many people's dreams never come to anything is that the people of Israel and you view the problem through earth's eyes, not through heaven's eyes. That's what we do. We do it naturally. We go, oh my goodness me, walls down, big king over the water, that's going to be scary. We're not going to do anything because it's impossible. We can't make it happen. And so we live with this poverty way of thinking. There is no way that God could bring revival. There is no way that my church, my community, my family, my job, my small gift can ever do anything because we look at the problem through earth's eyes, not through heaven's perspective. But God is the God who loves that we prosper. Now let's just pause for a moment. We do not have a prosperity gospel. By which I mean this. We know that it doesn't always work out right. It doesn't always work out well. We're not always triumphant. Everybody that we pray for isn't always healed in the way that we want them to be healed at the time we want them to be healed. Because we live in a broken world with a community of the betrayed one. We're expecting things to be difficult and hard because Jesus says so. But equally, we do not have a poverty gospel because we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who loves us deeply, who is generous towards us always, has a better plan for our life than we currently have and always underwrites the things that he calls us to. So we carry the cross and we carry the resurrection. We carry the cross and we carry the resurrection. The problem with most Christians in Britain is they carry an awful lot of the cross and not a lot of the resurrection. And so we never think we can do it and we never think God can make it and we never think that he is able and we never think that he's going to underwrite it and theoretically we think all the, everything I've said this evening is true but in practice we never believe for it because we're not living in the resurrection. What we need is an awful lot more resurrection because your God is able. And so what we hear is things like this. I hear it all the time. Yeah, you have a big vision for the Celtic nations, but it's dark. It's really difficult. You know, if this was in America or in South Africa or South America or, or Asia, then we'd see God moving in power. But, but Scotland's difficult. Ireland's difficult. And I hear it about certain cities and certain areas. And, 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 I, and I, to- I totally understand it because some of the statistics will tell us that's true. But when you begin to look at things through heaven's eye, I hear people say, but God's called me to Edinburgh and that's going to be hard. God's called me to Portobello or West Lothian or Aberdeen or Dundee or to refugees or to Buxton. And and here's my question. Who is the king of Dundee? Who is the king of Buxton? Who is the king of refugees? Who is the king of Edinburgh? The king of kings and the lord of lords is the king. And he is able to supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. And everything he has provoked, he underwrites. If, if you have a plan that comes from God, your plan will prosper. 
And leadership, the job of godly visionary leadership is to posture yourself between what God has promised and the fulfillment of that promise with expectation and faith, not fear and despair, because God is God. That's the job. Rant over. The the final thing I want to say is this. This leadership is all about mobilization. Turn turn to Nehemiah chapter 3. We'll rattle through this really quickly. Leaders, Leaders make the vision about everybody else. And then it becomes everybody else's vision. Okay, godly leaders make the vision about everybody else. And then, almost magically, it becomes everybody else's vision. Leaders who get God's heart empower people to get God's heart. And suddenly everyone gets the play. It's really important that we understand the context here. Nehemiah is what would be described in old school times as a layman. In other words, he's not a religious leader. He's not a priest. Ezra is the priest. He's not a prophet. Zechariah is the prophet. He's like a civil servant. He's just been called to lead. And, and, and what he gets, he gets used to lead the people of God in revival. How cool is that? What I need you to understand is this. Everything is spiritual. God doesn't have certain categories that are spiritual and other categories that are not spiritual. Everything that he calls us to is spiritual. Every role is spiritual. Everyone gets to build the wall. The religious leaders get to work alongside the political leaders. Verse 8, they get to work alongside the perfume makers. I would love to have lived next door to the perfume makers. I've got a particular thing about aftershave. I like it a lot. I would love to have lived next door to verse 8, the perfume makers, and then the Silversmiths, I like I like jewelry as well. And then the silversmiths, that'd have been cool to be alongside the silver, the silversmiths and the merchants. In other words, when we're trying, we're not trying to plant churches. I mean, we will, we will plant churches. We're trying to plant the culture of the kingdom of God, aren't we? Because if we if all we want to do is plant churches, we'd be training up this sausage machine full of church planters. I'm not interested in that. I want to plant the culture of the kingdom of God in your businesses, in your workplaces, in the hospitals, in the schools, in your, on your streets, in your university, the culture of the kingdom of God. And ultimately, when people gather around the culture of the kingdom of God, we call that a church. And so in, inadvertently, we planted a church. But we're not trying to plant churches. Because everything is spiritual. And as soon as we start talking about churches, we get boxed in an idea about what a church is. Everything is spiritual. Everyone gets the play. And every gift is encouraged. We need the builders and the fighters. I love that. Builders build and fighters fight. And the pioneers and the developers, the pastors and the apostles. We need every kind of gift and every kind of gift is encouraged. Notice this before we close. Gender is no barrier to leadership in the kingdom of God. Verse 12. Look. Look with me. Verse 12. I love this. It's a little throwaway comment. It's in the Old Testament. This is why it's unusual. In verse 12 it says, And the daughters built. And we think, 
must be random. Why would they say that? But what you need to understand is this. In the Old Testament, in, in that period of Jewish history, the, the women would never have been given that kind of line. You would never have been given that kind of authority and responsibility. But the daughters built. Why are we told that? Because God is no regarder of gender as far as leadership is concerned. Do you know, here's, I, I don't want to be overly controversial, but, but maybe a little. Um, I used to think... I think I used to think that leadership and gender was a secondary issue. Because it wasn't as important as, you know, the divinity of Jesus or the cross and the resurrection or or, or the stuff that we all have to sign up to to believe or all that kind of first order stuff. I used to think it was a secondary issue. And then I became convinced as I read the scriptures, I became convinced that as a male leader, I had the luxury to say it was a secondary issue. But as a female leader, you don't have that luxury, do you? It's not a secondary issue if you're being denied leading in the areas that God has called you to lead. And if you're being restricted or constricted because of somebody's reading of the, of the New Testament. And so I began to study. And, and this is not a sermon on that, but I will do a sermon on this at some stage in the near future if you fancy that. But, but what I began to understand, I began to ask questions. Why do we think it's acceptable for women only to teach women? What's that about? Why don't, why, do, why don't the men just teach the men then? Why do we think it's acceptable for the women only to teach the children? And when do the children become not children? Even worse. Why do we think it's acceptable for women to go and teach people of all ages and stages in Africa or Asia or anywhere else? And what does that make us if we think that's acceptable but we won't have women teach us or lead us? Here, And I began to study and I began to ask myself questions. Why did Jesus choose to be born of a woman? I mean, that sounds like a logical, but, but he could have done it any way he wanted to do it, couldn't he? Because it's God. Why did he let women fund his ministry? Why was his ministry totally underwritten by wealthy women? Why is the first evangelist in the scriptures a woman? The woman at the well in Samaria. Why is the, I mean, Jesus is not unintentional in this. And more importantly, why is the apostle, the first apostle to the apostles, a woman? Why is the first person to hear the good news of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, Mary, a woman who gets told to go and tell, tell, apostolos, go tell, go, go proclaim, go teach, go to the male leaders that Jesus is risen from the dead. I tell you why, because there is no male or female, Greek or slave, Greek or the other thing, slave or free in the kingdom of God. Because God has smashed down all the barriers and there are no more ceilings. And I think I probably need to apologize if as a woman you have felt restricted, constricted, suffocated, unable to, to do this. To say this is my complaint and this is my dream and this is my gift and this is my joy and I'm going to go after it. And if the church has become the last bastion of the place where you can't do that. Because that doesn't seem very much like good news, does it? 
Godly leaders release people into their visions and into their dreams. This leadership, this visionary leadership is tough. It's tough. It'll always be opposed. It's visionary, it's strategic, it's mobilizing, but it's tough. But it's possible because it's the vision of Jesus and the leadership of Jesus and he is with you and he calls you and he draws you and he leads you and he empowers you. This is the leadership of Jesus who, whose complaint is that the world is broken. Whose dream is something called his kingdom where there is nothing but what God wants and how God chooses. His gift is himself because he knows that the only way to mend this and bring about this is to come himself and to offer himself and to demonstrate himself who God is and then to give himself and give his life and take our place and die and rise again and make a way. And his joy, according to Hebrews chapter 12, is you. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. His joy is when you come to know him. His joy is when you run with your dream. His joy is when you're fully whole. His joy is when you get serious about the things that he gets serious about. His joy is when you find who you are and what you're for. That's his joy. Leadership is vital because it changes stuff. And this world is in desperate need of the changes that God wants to bring about. Let's pray. I um, have a friend who's an Indian pastor and I met him about 20, 23 years ago and uh, we led together for a while. And one of the things he said to me um, 23 years ago was, he said, Carl, um, lead, follow, or get out of the way. And I think it was a helpful piece of advice, but I think he's wrong. I mean, he's one of the most intelligent people I know. He teaches theology in a really well-known school in the States. I think he's wrong. I think the mantra should go something like this. Lead and follow and get out of the way. Lead and follow and get out of the way. Lead where God has called you to lead in the place between your complaint and your dream and your gift and your joy. And follow Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And get out of the way when you're blocking what God is wanting to do in you and through you and around you. Lead and follow and get out of the way. Holy Spirit, we just invite you now to come. And all over this building would you be sowing seeds of complaints and dreams.
all over this building would you be bringing complaints and reminding us of gifts and provoking our joy. And God, we ask that you would do a a terrific thing with our leadership that would make a radical difference in this world that is so broken. Would you dare to model leadership through a group of ordinary broken individuals who say yes to you?